The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Well, welcome to our CE class, the verse-by-verse verse through the Gospel of Mark. This class begins today, and it's going to go, if my calendar is right, as I've mapped it out, we are going to be going through the Gospel of Mark for 33 weeks. That means it starts today and it ends, if I hurry, at the end of June 2019. And that includes going through December. Normally we break for a couple of weeks in December during the tree. We're not breaking for the tree in this class uh, during December. Um, so join with us. Plan to be with us together uh, from now until the end of June. So, Gospel of Mark. This is the first time I have ever... Uh, taught through a, a gospel uh, here at Broadway. Uh, in, in this class, the, the pattern that, I, that has evolved is I do a book of the Bible, then I teach on a doctrine. Then a book of the Bible, then the, a doctrine. In this class, we've gone through, let's see if we can remember them all, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Romans, Galatians, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, uh, Philippians, I think, um, Revelation, that one scared me. Um, what else have we done? I'm Ephesians 2? Wow, I didn't think I'd done Ephesians. I was going to do that one next. Oh, well. Ephesians. So there's 10 books that I can think of right now. We've done the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Revelation, not the book of Revelation, but the doctrine of Revelation, meaning how we got our Bible and how to interpret the Bible. Um, doctrine of man, that's right. Uh, the fall of 2019, Lord willing, we're going to do the doctrine of salvation, meaning, okay, how did Jesus save us? We, we know the words, but strictly speaking, how did God forgive us? And, and uh, how did Jesus dying cause us to be forgiven? Couldn't God just say, I forgive you? Why did someone have to die for that to happen? And how does Jesus' death do all that? We're, we're going to learn a whole a bunch. It's called soteriology is the, the, the uh, fancy term. But that's the September of 2019. And for the next 33 weeks, the next few months, we're going to be going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. So next week is when we're actually going to crack open the book and start going verse by verse. Today, as you see in your outline, and hopefully you have an outline, we're going to sort of lay the foundation and uh, explain and answer a few crucial questions when it comes to studying a book like this. First of all, a question is, what is a gospel? You know, what, what is a gospel? Um, now, and I'll tell you when you're about to fill in a blank, so don't worry. But initially, the term gospel did not refer, did not refer to a specific literary genre in the first century. Meaning, by genre, we're talking about a family of literature, or a style, or a classification of literature. For example, there's the genre of poetry, which has its own set of rules. There's the genre of prose, uh, which has its own set of rules that you go by when you write prose. There's the genre of a legal document, which has its own set of rules that you have to follow. Well, there was no genre called gospel. And uh, so th this was a new thing. In fact, as your outline says, it's translated from the Greek word evangelion, uh, which had various meanings at the time, back 2,000 years ago, but it loosely meant good news. So evangelion loosely means good news. That's what the original Greek word means, good news. So back then, 
it was uh, used to describe a proclamation of good news from the battlefield. I bring Evangelion from the battlefield. Or it was used in Rome as the term for any royal pronouncement regarding major events uh, like the birth of an heir or the ascension to the throne. For example, archaeologists have found an inscription celebrating the birthday of Roman Emperor Augustus. So when Augustus was born, they found an inscription that said, Evangelion to the world. So good news to the world. An emperor has been born. This term then began to be used as the term to describe what was preached about the story of God's activity on earth through the life of Jesus. So the the early church kind of, not hijacked, but really absorbed this word and said, yeah, we're preaching the evangelion of Jesus, the good news about what God has done through this man, Jesus. Um, So the word gospel became associated with a description of God's activity uh, uh, to step into the world to save mankind. And so now, uh, centuries later, it ended up being almost exclusively associated with the life of Jesus and the Christian church. You don't really hear the word gospel being associated with anything outside of the church. So as your outline says, in the end, the simplest answer to the question, what is a gospel, would be this. A gospel is a book about Jesus. That's the simplest explanation. A gospel is a book about Jesus. Now, we've got some folks who are looking for seats here. So can we kind of squeeze in a bit? So uh, maybe particularly squeeze in so people can just come up the aisles. That would be very helpful. Thank you, folks. So a gospel is a book about Jesus. Now, for the the next four minutes, or for those who like to dig a little bit deeper uh, uh, into this whole sense of you know a genre and what all that means and so on and uh, how the gospels are treated by historians and scholars let me say this historians and scholars can generally be placed on two extremes so on, on this continuum there's two extremes uh, some historians and scholars treat gospels as though they had no literary precedent whatsoever they were simply the gospel that was written down is simply this what we call dynamic preaching In other words, all the Gospels are are some people who assembled a bunch of sermons from the first century, and that's all a Gospel is. It's just sermon notes from the first century. That's one extreme. There's other extremes who treat this and say, no, these are the early Christians who are copying what's called a Greco-Roman biographies. I'll just call them bios. Greco-Roman biographies. And that was a whole form of literature back then with its own set of rules and so on. And so there's two extremes. No, it's just sermon notes. Oh, no, this is strict Roman Greco first century biographies. And over the years, the scholar seems to have settled somewhere in the middle uh, where it's a blending of those two is what they've come down to. A more balanced approach has evolved over the years where it's not a document that strictly adheres to the rules of a Greco-Roman biography. Neither is it so dynamic that it's just a bunch of stories that have loosely been uh, thrown together. It's a blending of the two, uh, of, of these two formats, where the preaching and teaching of Jesus is, is blended, but it's used and presented in an outlined historical format that details the historical events of Jesus' life. But not necessarily, and this is crucial, because about, 
and I've been in ministry since 1985. In 1986, what I sought to do as a youth pastor and an assistant pastor in a church in Toronto, I sought to take, to look at the four gospels and then combine them all into just one, the gospel of Darren, <laughs> you know, and just say, okay, I'm just going to put it all in chronological order. And I realized you can't do it because the gospel writers actually didn't put everything down the same. And, uh, and so, what, and that, which was actually an acceptable form of, of writing back in the first century, particularly. Even the, the biographies, Greco-Roman biographies, they didn't necessarily put things in chronological order, meaning um, born this day, then the next year, then the next year, then the next year. Even then, they didn't do that. And the gospel writers didn't necessarily do that. What the gospel writers did was, they had a theme. Each writer had a unique theme that they were seeking to present about Jesus, and they took the historical events of Jesus' life and they sometimes arranged them in a way that would best communicate that theme. Sometimes they did it chronologically, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they would take teaching of Jesus that he, he, he taught on this early in his ministry and they, in their story, included it later in the story. Of the, but because that's, that story fit what they were communicating at that moment. It doesn't mean chronologically Jesus taught that in the last couple weeks of his life, but they just brought a story from early in his ministry. And let's keep in mind, Jesus was an itinerant preacher, meaning, you know, when I, when I, I'm going to be in Thailand in, in a few weeks. And when I'm in Thailand, I'm not writing a special sermon for the church in Bangkok. Sorry, people in Bangkok, if you're watching this, I'm, I, I'm using notes that I preached here. And I'm teaching some leadership lessons in universities there. Sorry, I'm not writing new material for the university in, 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 in Thailand. I'm using material that I've taught for many years. And Jesus would have done that as an itinerant preacher. Okay, he's, he's in Galilee, and then he's in uh, Tyre and Sidon. He, he would have used the same basic material as he traveled around. And the disciples would have heard the same stuff over and over again, which would have helped them to remember it, by the way. Okay, so it's likely best to see the New Testament Gospels as a hybrid between a sermon and a biography. So while the Gospels are certainly, yes, they're historical documents, each author had a theme, an emphasis, and they sometime arranged the events in Jesus' life to better communicate that theme, which was completely acceptable uh, literary technique in first century historical writing. So in the end, what is a Gospel? It's simplest just to say it's a, gosp a Gospel is a book about Jesus. Okay, next question on your outline. So who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Now, that sounds like a silly question. That's like saying, what's Billy's name? You know, what do you mean, who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Duh, Mark. Well, it's not that simple. Because who wrote the Gospel of Mark is a legitimate question when you understand ancient documents. Strictly speaking, strictly speaking, all four Gospels are anonymous. Meaning, nowhere in the Gospel, just ignore the title, because the title wasn't in the original document. Nowhere in the original document did it say the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark starts in Mark 1, verse 1. And nowhere in the Gospel, the body itself, does it have his name. Nowhere in Luke and Matthew does it have his name. Nowhere in Luke, nowhere in John does it strictly have their name. Strictly speaking, they are anonymous documents. By that, so by that I mean that none of the writers directly mentioned or identified themselves in their writing. Okay. 
Luke and John come closest with Luke's first-person introductory prologue in Luke 1, 1 1-4, and John's comments in the end about the disciple whom Jesus loved, and this is the disciple who's writing this down. That's a strong hint that that's John. But neither Matthew or Mark have any self-reference at all in their Gospels. So why the anonymity? I like that word, anonymity. Everybody say anonymity. Yeah, there you go. It's your fancy word for the day. Um, why the anonymity? Three possible reasons. Uh, first of all, and this isn't on your outline. This is all for free, but you can write it somewhere if you want. Um, first century documents didn't have covers like books do today. So if you think about it, any novel that you have, in the body of the novel or book itself, it doesn't have the author's name. The author's name is on the cover or in the prologue or something. Well, it was similar in the first century, and, and paper back then was much more, you know, papyrus and all that, very expensive. And so you, you got as much as you could on that sheepskin thing or whatever, you know. So they didn't have covers, uh, with paper covers and so on. And so first century documents, they just, they didn't have covers like we do today. Also, the most famous biogra- uh, biographical writers of the first century did not include their names in their manuscripts. Plutarch is probably the most best known. His writings didn't have his name on them. So this is not an unusual thing. And also, these books, the Gospels, were not considered the property of any one individual, like copywritten, Mark. You know, so I, I get residuals from this. No, no, not at all. They were considered the property of the entire Christian community. So if that's the case, if the original autographs, meaning the original documents with yeah, Mark himself wrote, if we, his name isn't on that, then how do we know who wrote the four Gospels? Well, the early church knew who the authors were. Um, That's what gave the Gospels their authority, by the way. Um, If you remember when we did our study on the doctrine of Revelation, how we got our Bible, we talked about how the early church and how even in the Old Testament, how we knew this, what made a document the Word of God, what made it Scripture. And we learned that in order to be considered a New Testament Scripture, the writers had to come from the apostolic circle, meaning they had to be one of the apostles or the, the, the uh, writing had to be written um, by someone who was closely connected with the apostles, what were called the apostolic circle, okay? So the writers of the four gospels were each known by their original audience. So each of them, Mark wrote this, we believe he wrote it in Rome or in Italy, um, and that's really not debated, and we have reasons for that, which we can get into later, but he wrote it there for a Roman audience, for a Roman congregation. And so that congregation would have known, yes, this is Mark. He's one of our guys. It's like if you're in our first service. Jamal, you know, he's, he's uh, signing his book and selling his book today. I hope you pick one up in the lobby. Jamal's part of our congregation. We held him up. This is Jamal. This is Jamal's book. I encourage you to get a copy. In the first century, this is Mark. Here's Mark's gospel. We encourage you to, 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 to listen to it, to read it, and to copy it out and spread it around. Okay? That's what would have been done. So the, the, early, the original audience would have known this is Mark. They would have known who he was, and we'll get to that in a moment. So the writers of each of four of the original Gospels were known by their original audience. And the original audience, the congregation, would have then copied the Gospel in order to spread it to other congregations. So here's an authorized recording from the apost- either an apostle or the apostolic circle. This is legitimate. And and it's verified, we, we, we have the stamp of approval, we know Mark wrote this, okay? And we know Mark's part of the apostolic circle, we'll get to that in a moment. And so then the copies that they made then would have included the name of the author. 
Gospel of Jesus according to Mark. The gospel of Jesus according to Matthew. So it's the copies then that would have had those names on them. And so this is how uh, they initially were spread with the names of the authors attached. And we have strong and early historical tradition identifying the authorship of all four of the New Testament writers. So, Darren, what's the strong early historical tradition when it comes to the Gospel of Mark? As your outline asks, how do we know that Mark wrote the Gospel according to Mark? Well, the earliest tradition... uh, Next week, we'll have a a little uh, paper towel with water on or something. So the earliest tradition, what we have is uh, a guy named Eusebius, who is a historian, and uh, 263 to 339 AD. So that's way back there. So that's the third century uh, that he began in writing. And Eusebius, we have his writings, and he quotes a guy named Papias, And Papias wrote between 95 and 110 AD. So Papias is quoted, Eusebius quotes Papias, and Papias quotes the elder, which is John, the apostle. So he was a a disciple of John the apostle, who was a disciple of Jesus, of course. Okay? So what we have, we have the document of Eusebius quoting Papias, who was quoting his the guy that he was a disciple of John, who was a disciple of Jesus. And here is what uh, Papias wrote, and then Eusebius quoted him. It's all, I put it on your outline. So this is what we have. The elder, who was John, uh, used to say this. So I'm quoting John the Apostle now. Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote down accurately, but not in order, all that he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord. So Mark translated for Peter and was an interpreter for Peter when Peter went around and preached and because Peter probably wasn't a really good Greek speaker. And so uh, Mark would translate for him uh, and he, he, he wrote down all the stories and things that he heard Peter say from what Peter remembered that Jesus said and did. For he, this is Mark, had not heard the Lord or been one of his followers, but later, as I said, a follower of Peter. Peter used to teach as the occasion demanded without giving systematic arrangement to the Lord's saying. Remember, we studied systematic theology a while ago here. Systematic means organizing things in specific order. Well, Peter would preach, but he wouldn't necessarily put it all in systematic order of the Lord's sayings so that Mark did not err in writing some things as he recalled them. For he had, Mark had, one overriding purpose, to omit nothing that he had heard and to make no false statements in his account. So, it's important to note that there are no other competing claims to the authorship of this gospel. So there's no one out there, scholars out there, think, oh, we think so-and-so wrote or so-and-so wrote it. No, it's generally agreed upon that Mark was the writer of this. And since Mark was a relatively obscure figure, it seems unlikely that a gospel would have been attributed to him if it had not been, in fact, written by him. So as your outline says, so we have a first century tradition claiming that Mark, Mark accurately translated Peter's eyewitness accounts, turning Peter's anecdotal stories into a connected narrative, though not necessarily in chronological order. 
So the gospel of Mark is not the distant evaluation of a scholarly admirer of Jesus, but it's the subjective eyewitness, really, experience of one of those who shared most closely in the events of Jesus' life and ministry. So this is Mark writing down Peter's account, okay? In Jamal's book, he had a gentleman sit down with him and write the story for him and help him craft it, okay? Mark did that with Peter's story, okay? And that's why as we go through Mark, we'll see that it's filled with personal details of an eyewitness that only an eyewitness would know. We'll pick up on those over the next few months. So who is Mark? Uh, he's not one of the apostles, the disciples. So who is he? Fascinating story. In my steps journal a couple of years ago, uh, somehow I was reading about Mark. And I, as I read this, I, I, start, I trailed the, the life of Mark. And I realized Mark is a comeback story. If you've ever stumbled and blown it in life and thought, I, I, I'm a write-off, study Mark, meaning the person of Mark, not just the gospel of Mark. You, you'll see this t- in the next 10 minutes here. Watch this. Number one, who is Mark? He's the son, as your outline says, he's the son of a woman named Mary, whose Jerusalem home appeared to be the headquarters of the early church, since it was to this home that Peter returned after his late-night release from prison. So he's the son of a woman named Mary, and Mary's home looked like it was the headquarters of the church in Jerusalem. Why? Well, think about this. Peter's in jail. Remember, he gets thrown into jail. And in the middle of the night, God sets him free. The angels set him free from jail. And where does Peter run? You've been set free from jail. You're a little bit nervous. You don't want to get caught again. So he, he runs somewhere that he's going to feel safe, where he thinks everyone's going to be. And this is when he, remember he goes, he knocks on the door and the servant looks and sees it's Peter. And, ah, Peter, it's his, his angel or something. They can't believe it's Peter. He's in jail. What's he doing here? And they run away and say, let him in. What are you doing? And they go and they open the door and they let him in. This was, that was the home of Mark's mother, Mary. That was Mark's house that he went to. That's Acts 12, 12. You can look these up on your own. Number two, according to the apostle Paul, Mark was Barnabas's cousin. Okay, Colossians 4.10 will tell you that. Mark is Barnabas' cousin. Remember, Barnabas was the guy that the apostle Paul first went traveling with. When Paul, who was Saul, a Christian killer, first gets saved, everyone, a lot of people are scared of him, but Barnabas, son of encouragement was his nickname. He steps up and says, no, I think God's in this. And Barnabas welcomes him. Barnabas is a very welcoming guy. Uh, And Barnabas says, no, I I believe you, Paul. And Barnabas, you know, They initially traveled together. Well, Mark and Barnabas are cousins. Number three, Luke reports that Mark accompanied Barnabas and Paul back to Antioch after the two had brought famine relief to Jerusalem. Let's pick this up. I'm going to start reading some passages now. Acts 12, 25 says, uh, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, uh, taking with them John, also called Mark. This is John Mark, okay? So Barnabas, Mark's just a young guy back then, and uh, they take with him. So like they're mentoring this little guy. So, you know, Barnabas, I'm going to bring my cousin Mark with us, Paul. Is that okay? Yeah, sure, bring him along, okay? We'll mentor him. So uh, Mark travels with Paul and Barnabas when they go to uh, Antioch. um, So they've what happened was there's famine in Jerusalem. So they were started up in Antioch and they brought some famine relief, some money down to Jerusalem. And on their way back, 
they say, let's take John Mark with us. So they go back, and he goes back with them to Antioch, okay? So Mark, John Mark was from Jerusalem. They take the money to Jerusalem. They say, Mark, you want to come back with us? Yeah. So he travels back with them to Antioch. Then number four, Mark then accompanied Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey as a helper. He accompanied them. Uh, Acts 13.5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. John, John, Mark. He's with them as their helper. Okay, so this is great. So this young guy is, is being mentored by these folks. He's traveling with them. He's on a missionary journey with Barnabas and, and, and Saul and Paul, who are best of buddies, okay? But keep reading. However, for reasons unknown, Mark left them suddenly at Perga and returned to Jerusalem. For reasons unknown, Mark left them suddenly at Perga. So Acts 13, 13 says... From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Doesn't say why, but he left them suddenly. Number six. When uh, Actually, let's read the passage first. Acts 15, 36 to 39. Acts 15, 36 to 39 says this. Some time later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul didn't think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. So they, these best of buddies fought. Barnabas said, I think we should take Mark with us. And Paul said, no way. He, he bailed on us last time. I'm not taking him this time. And they so debated, they could not come to agreements. And Barnabas said, fine, I'm going to go with Mark and go this way. And Paul said, great, I'll go with Silas and I'll go this way. See you later. And all over Mark. So as your outline says, when Barnabas and Paul later discussed retracing their first missionary journey route, Barnabas wanted to take Mark with them again. Paul refused. He refused, and the disagreement was such that the two parted ways, with Paul returning to Galatia and Barnabas taking Mark with him to Cyprus. So Paul refused, and the two parted ways. Number seven, but it appears that Paul and Mark reconcile, as your outline says, reconcile later. Because Paul mentions Mark in his letter to the Colossians and in his letter to Philemon. Let's uh, look at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4 verse 10. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instruction about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. So clearly they've reconciled somehow. He mentions him in Philemon as well, Philemon 24. You can look at that on your own. Number eight, near the end of Paul's life in a prison cell in Rome, Mark had apparently become a valued helper as evidenced by Paul's request for him. You read that in 2 Timothy 4.11. says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So we've gone from Mark, Paul saying, I don't want to have anything to do with this guy, to near the end of his life, Paul saying, please bring Mark. He's very helpful to me. 
So number eight, near the end of Paul's life in a prison cell in Rome, Mark had apparently become a valued helper as evidenced by Paul's request for him. And then number eight, Mark's association with Peter appears to be alluded to, alluded to by Peter himself in 1 Peter 5.13, where he says, she who is in Babylon, talking about Rome essentially, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, talking about the church, and so does my son Mark. Okay? So Mark and Peter uh, clearly had a, a mentoring relationship as well in Rome, where Paul was also working with Mark. So Mark was in Rome at this point and working with Paul and with Peter. Now, early tradition has Mark writing his gospel from Rome or somewhere in Italy to a Roman audience where Peter spent uh, the end of his life as well. By the way, this is why Mark translates Aramaic words into Greek for his readers, and he uses a number of Latinisms. That's why at one point in Mark, in Mark 12, 42, when he's telling the story about the widow's might in giving money, he says, and she gave this amount of money, which is so much in Roman money. Why would he do that? Clearly, he was writing to a Roman audience. It'd be like me saying, if you saw a video of me talking, and you don't know who I'm speaking to, and I say, and, and the person gave, you know, $3, which is about one British pound. You think, oh, he must be speaking to a British audience. Why else would I translate the money to British pounds? That's what Mark does. He translates coinage, just one example of others, into Latinisms. So clearly, he was, he was writing for not an Aramaic or a Jewish audience, per se, but a, a Roman audience. So why did, when did Mark write his gospel? As your outline says, the gospel according to Mark is considered to be the earliest of the four gospels. That's why I chose to study Mark. It's considered to be the earliest of the four gospels. So historically, Mark came first. What's interesting, though, is historically, for centuries, Mark was the most ignored of the gospels. In fact, you couldn't find commentaries about Mark until centuries later after it was written. You think, well, why is that? You know, um, well, because what they did was, and it makes sense, uh, because Matthew, so there's, you've got the four Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these three are called synoptic Gospels, meaning similar, okay? And John is different. John stands on his own. What happened was, as scholars of historians have studied these over the years, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share their chunks of each gospel that are identical. And there are other pieces that are uh, very similar to some of the words have been changed. And so they knew that these three shared a common source. And uh, for years, they weren't quite sure which source was, but now modern scholarship has clearly pegged that Mark is what they call Mark and priority is what scholars call it now. So Mark was the first one. And so why uh, people didn't bother studying Mark too much was because you can read pretty well everything that's in Mark. It's also the shortest of the Gospels, which is another reason why I thought it'd be good to study. <laughs> um, but uh, you can read most of Mark in Matthew and Luke. Actually, this is Matthew, strictly speaking, but Mark, Matthew, Luke, let's call it. And so you can read most of Mark in Matthew and Luke. So why study Mark when you're, stu you're really st studying Mark if you study Matthew and Luke? Because it's all embedded in there anyway. So that's what most people did for centuries. But it's cons it was the earliest of the four Gospels written. And John has completely different sources. His style is completely different. So 
while the date of Mark's gospel remains an open question, we're not sure exactly, but it's likely that it was written somewhere in the mid to late 60s. Mid to late 60s. That's not 1960s, um, but 60s. So mid-late 60s, sh- certainly before A.D. 70. Uh, and why do we know that? Because it was in A.D. 70 that the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And there's nothing mentioned about it. Um, in fact, we know uh, there's nothing mentioned about that at all. And sh- but Mark quotes Jesus talking about, remember the disciples asked, aren't these beautiful buildings looking at the temple? And Jesus sits them down and says, there'll come a day when not one of these stones will be you know, standing. It'll all be destroyed. And this generation will not pass away, you know, Jesus says. And we'll be studying that because that's a bit of a tricky passage. We'll study that in a few months. <laughs> but um, so, but if, if Mark was written after that took place, surely Mark would write as, and this was fulfilled in, in our, before our eyes or something like that. None of that's mentioned. So Mark was written in the mid to late 60s. It's just one of the reasons why scholars have a pretty strong intuition. Mark was written before AD 70, before the temple was destroyed. And in fact, much of Mark's writing is to encourage people who are undergoing trials and difficulties and stress, um, which was really happening. You know, the, the, the destruction of the temple just didn't come out of nowhere. The political chaos was building and building and building uh, and just erupted in AD 70. So when this was written from Rome, um, Mark knew what was happening. He knew where all this was going, okay? Now, let's conclude with the flow of Mark's gospel. How, you know, you can, different scholars and historians divide it up in different ways, but essentially there's sort of three, the way we're going to look at this is um, three main acts is how we're going to treat it, okay? Um, think of Mark's gospel as a play. It's a play, and Mark has divided this into three main acts. Act one is going to be from the introduction, which we'll start at next week, to Caesarea Philippi. If you were on our tour, when we went to Israel a few months ago, we were in Caesarea Philippi. Um, and uh, by the way, Circle this in your calendars. March 2020, we're going again, and you need to be there. If you're not there, why are you not there? I consider it a personal rejection. Um, it'll change your life. But so from the introduction to when he took the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, that's where the famous, you know, who do people say that I am? Some say Elijah, some say prophets. Who do you say that? I, who do people say that I am, first of all? Now, who do you say that I am? That is the end of Act 1. Okay, And the key theme, as your outline says, in Act 1 is, who is this man? For the first third of this gospel, it's, who is this guy? The waves and the wind obey him. He would do things. Who are you? Where do you get this authority? So the whole question in the first, the- first third of Mark is, who is this? Okay, But it's at Caesarea Philippi that Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus said, you're right. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, Peter, but my spirit has revealed that to you. And Act 2 goes from Caesarea to Jerusalem. So, you know, the Sea of Galilee, Caesarea Philippi is up here, and there's the Jordan River, and then the Dead Sea, and Jerusalem here. So what happens is, from Caesarea Philippi, then Mark tells us about the journey to Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing. Jesus went to Jerusalem more than once. 
But in Mark's gospel, he's only in Jerusalem once. So again, so he's arranging things to, to, to communicate this theme. Um, but Jesus was there, you know, probably three times over the, the life of his ministry for Passover every year. But in Mark's gospel, he just tells us about the last time he went. So, so act one is Jesus traveling all around Galilee and goes down here to get baptized once and then back up, back up to Galilee. And then he goes up to Caesarea Philippi and all these questions as he's doing his ministry and teaching and doing miracles. Who is this guy? Who is this man? Up there, Peter says, I finally figured out you're the Messiah. Jesus says, you're right. And now, for the next little while, Jesus unpacks the Messiah must suffer, the Messiah must die, and then he'll be raised again to life. So the, the key theme from Caesarea Philippi down to Jerusalem is, who is the Messiah? The, the Jews had a false concept of the Messiah, and Jesus needed to communicate this clearly. It's one of the reasons why when people said, you know, Jesus didn't stand up and say, I'm the Messiah, right away, and would tell people to be quiet initially because, well, we'll learn about that over the next few weeks. There's a real clear reasons for that. And so now, okay, yes, Jesus admits it. Yes, I'm the Messiah, but the Messiah isn't who you think he is. And so the next act, act two, from Caesarea Philippi down to his journey to Jerusalem, his final journey to Jerusalem, is all about Mark teaching who the Messiah is. And then act three is the last week of Jesus' life in Jerusalem. And uh, the key theme there is the final conflict and victory. The final conflict and victory. So the Messiah crashing up against the religious authorities of the day and all that happens. And the Gospel of Mark ends in the most bizarre way. Most scholars believe, and I think it's true, Gospel of Mark ends at verse 8 of the last chapter. Those last few verses of, were not in the earliest and the most reliable manuscripts. And so it, acts, it ends abruptly and strangely almost. And so scholars have said either Mark was a genius or we lost something. And uh, we'll talk about that as we go through this Gospel. Here's the thing. Next week... We are going to pick it up, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. Next week, we are going to uh, be introduced to John the Baptist. We're going to uh, learn about the baptism of Jesus. Uh, we're going to learn about the testing of Jesus. And three questions for you to think about this coming week. We're going to learn the answers to this next week. Did you know that the people in the first century did not call Jesus, Jesus? That's not what they would have called him. What did they call him? We'll learn that next week. Secondly... Um, why did Jesus get baptized if he was sinless? It, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, people confessing their sins. Why would Jesus get baptized if he was sinless? And why, what does the term son of God mean? We'll be introduced to that term next week. What does it mean? Here's a hint. It doesn't necessarily mean God in flesh. It was a very common term, term back then. And, uh, so, and Jesus rarely used it about himself. He preferred the term son of man. And we'll learn what that means over the next few weeks as well. It's going to be a great study. Um, what time is it? That's 5, 2, 10, 2? We have time for a couple moments of questions if you have any questions about what we've learned today. Any questions about what we've learned? This is just the introduction. Yes, Okay, yes. How many Gospels are there? There's, there's all sorts of Gospels out. The Gospel of Thomas, and there's the Gospel of Peter, and so on and so forth. 
These, there are only four Gospels that are authorized by the early church. Um, and there are others what are called Gnostic Gospels. Remember the book of the Da Vinci Code? Um, they alluded to these other Gospels. These other Gospels were all written after these original Gospels by non-apostles and people not in the apostolic circle. And they're filled with all sorts of fanciful, bizarre things like Jesus creating hens out of mud and taunting his playmates by doing all these magical things, just bizarre stuff, that, which is why the early church said, no, these are the four canonical. These are the four recognized ones. These have the endorsement of the apostles in the apostolic circle because anything else other than that is not legitimate. And one of the main reasons why this was important was because early on, um, the, the Romans began to push against the, the early church And if you were caught with scripture, you could die. So early Christians were saying, okay, if we're going to die for having something in our possessions, we want to know it's legit and not counterfeit. And so, again, these were some reasons why the early church um, had these gatherings and said, here's what's authorized and here's what's not. So there are only four authorized gospels. Yes? Oh, you had to go there, didn't you? (laughs) What denomination was the early church? Yes, that's an excellent question, actually. And here's how it, here's how it all worked over the history. So the root of the tree was, the word Catholic means universal. So there were no denominations or anything like that. There was one universal church, the Catholic church, okay? Now, when you think, you hear Catholic, you think Roman Catholic. No. That's not what we're talking about. There was one church with the apostles and so on, okay? That was the root of the tree. And then as the years went on, um, there became a bit of a split off a few centuries later um, because there was the Eastern church um, and then there was the Western church. The Western church was based in Rome and the Eastern church was, say, like Constantinople, um, okay? So there was this split and it was more of a political split with some theology as well. And so then you had the Roman Catholic Church on this branch and the what's called the Orthodox. So the Eastern Orthodox. So then they split. And then over the years, you had splits from the Roman, you know, people protested against the Roman Catholic Church over the years. So they were called Protestants. Okay? And uh, then Protestants have various, you know, versions of that. We are Protestants, um, Protestants, and we are a part of that branch of the Protestant church. So the question is, you know, so there were no denominations back then per se, but the root, we're talking right here, the very early root, it was one universal church and just, but it was located in a smaller region. And then as the world grew and the, it began as the church grew and the need for order and so on grew. It just became a larger body that needed to be organized and, and, and systematic theology came into play and that's where people saw things a bit differently. Now, when all said and done, we all essentially believe the same key elements, key truths. So what caused division is often more political than it was theological, though there are some theological differences, but they're very small for the most part. Great question. All right, folks, next week we're going to start Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 1 to 13. Hope to see you then. God bless you. Thanks for being here.